between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is Alchemy Mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're blessed by the presence of Jason Scott, founder and owner of Feral Fungi. Jason Scott is a mycologist, ethnobotanist, and spagyricist who has studied traditional hermetic alchemy from history and philosophy to practice for the past nine years. He has a background in ethnobotany and plant medicine that started on the big island of Hawaii and has carried back with him into his home, the Pacific Northwest. Born and raised in Oregon, Jason has an intrinsic interest in the fungal queendom and all of its aspects from cultivation and mycoremediation to historical and cultural relationships. Jason has studied various different healing modalities, including Ayurveda in Nepal and Western herbalism all over Oregon and Washington. As owner of Feral Fungi, he produces mushroom spagyric tinctures, and he curates alchemycology.com, where he shares some of his teachings and writings alongside other fascinating discoveries in the world of fungi. Jason is also a co-organizer of the Radical Mycology Convergence and the Fungi Film Fest. He is on an ever-deepening journey of education to understand the practical applications of his interests and the golden threads that connect them. Jason, thanks for joining us on Mushroom Hour. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Darren. I'm looking forward to chatting today. Well, I am, and I know so many people listening probably are, given that introduction, uh, the fact that your background and expertise weaves together things like alchemy with mycology and practical mycology. I mean, it's really an amazing set of knowledge that you're you're combining together in your work. And I'm going to guess there's a pretty unique and interesting origin story to back that up, including I'm hearing bits about Hawaii and the Pacific Northwest. So why don't you tell us a little bit of those synchronistic sequence of events that got you to where you are today? Yeah, it's definitely a bit of a niche. You know, I feel like mycology up until the last couple of years has been a really uh, niche field of study. And um, there's a growing group of people who are largely dedicated and interested in fungi. And then alchemy is quite the same and probably even more obscured and, and less known. So it's interesting that I've kind of found myself at this crossroads and it's really interesting to me, like where they intersect, but trying to figure out the start of that journey is a really challenging one. You know, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and I spent a lot of time out kind of at the foothills of, of Mount Hood 
out in like the Eagle Creek Estacada area and got to spend a lot of time outside in nature. I didn't really have a specific relationship with fungi at that point, but just kind of all of it and getting to spend time in the creeks and the streams and catching salamanders and, you know, kind of frolicking through the the green wilderness that is out there and, and the amazing wilderness that is in the Pacific Northwest too with that temperate rainforest. And so that really guided me towards a, a really natural path in general, even though that hadn't really been something that I gained from from my family or my background in that way. It was just something that I was kind of like raised into through my exploration of it. So that was always close to me from the time that I was very young. And then, you know, as I grew older, started going to school, I faced a lot of the same kind of hardships and trauma that I feel a lot of teenagers face, you know, when you're just kind of really in a disconnected system and and system that doesn't really have a cosmology or stories of what's really important or connection to place and all of these kinds of disjointed things. And you're really trying to figure out how to exist in that world. Also with kind of a bit of radicalized politics in line with that of just kind of seeing the overarching systems for what they are and feeling really an attrition to those things. And then trying to figure out, you know, knowing that and holding that knowledge and and kind of existing in that is like, how do you move forward and how do you make some sort of impact, you know, with your life and, and the ways that you relate to other people, the ways that you relate to society, the ways that you relate to culture and so that was kind of, um, that it was very tumultuous for me to kind of go through that, as I'm sure it is for a lot of, you know, younger people in this culture and really trying to find a way to understand myself through all of that. And it's kind of challenging because there's kind of like this separation from the normative culture And then there's also this kind of path of discovery of like figuring out like, okay, well, where do I myself fit into all of this and, you know, what resonates with my heart and my path. And so through that, I dealt with a lot of depression and and kind of like mental health things associated with that, a little bit of anxiety and things that just kind of, I feel like naturally arise with those types of things. I think that they're really prevalent in our culture, especially for that age group, you know, and for myself personally, it was, you know, I got to a point and I went and saw a doctor and he was like, yeah, just take this pill. What set of chemicals do you want to take? And I kind of like looked outside and I was like, that's not really going to affect what the core of what's going on is. So that was kind of like what ultimately tripped up that path of discovering for myself, like what's at the root of that and how do we fix the root, you know, kind of getting to the root of like radical and what that means and thinking of myself you know, as like a radical person at the time, and it's like you're looking at the root of what it is and how do you get to that root and how do you affect change in that root? And at that time too, my grandma got really sick um, with cancer as well, you know, brain cancer. And um, again, something else that's really prevalent and that pretty much everybody has experienced either directly or indirectly with people in their family or, or somebody who's close to them in some regard And just seeing the way that sickness develops and replicates itself and the way that Western medicine kind of has its shortcomings, I think that also really inspired 
my path to a large degree as well. So those things really led me to a path of kind of self-medication, um, which, you know, was unhealthy for quite a long time, but it also opened my mind to nature in, in a whole different way. And, and kind of along that path, I also, um, I also met the, the mushrooms in a much more intimate setting and intimate way. And, and really kind of from there, they were just with me all the time and, and have really kind of been a really solid ally in a, in a way that I know they are for a lot of people like that too. So, Well, I think you've just painted a really vivid story that so many people listening can relate to in terms of finding a culture that's bereft of seemingly any direction. You know, you get to that point where you kind of realize that so many aspects of our system are broken. For a while, maybe you rage against it, and then you just have to figure out how am I orienting myself? You know, what kind of principles am I living by? How, how, yeah, how do I orient myself to produce more of what I want to see in the world? What do I want to see more of in the world? It leaves you kind of wrestling with age old fundamental questions of the human experience. And I love that piece you said about stories. You know, I think of people like Joseph Campbell and uh, here in Marin County, California, there was a teacher named Angelus mm -hmm. Arians who explored a lot of these similar concepts about mm -hmm. what are the stories of our culture? You know, what myths do we tell? Because those actually had a pretty distinct purpose in yeah. giving people some mooring and understanding of their relationships with each other and with nature. And I'm assuming you think this, given your explanation, your story, but do you see that as something that's really lacking right now in our, I don't even want to say Western European society, but modernist society is a lack of effective stories or myths that give us some, some grounding and, and orientation as human beings? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I would even kind of venture so far as to say like, that's probably one of those core issues that we're really facing and dealing with and and honestly you know it's a piece as we kind of move into talking more about like medicinal mushrooms and stuff as well and supplements which we kind of are in that supplement industry you know there's just kind of like an entire disregard for life in in a large way and i think a lot of that is kind of rooted in the fact that we don't have stories and we don't have those kind of meaningful myths and stories and like teachings and songs that connect us to place and to connect us to recognizing everything else as as living beings and recognizing kind of like the space that they hold and, and the honoring them in that way too and and for me it's like i question where i where i'm at a lot of times if i go to like shows and stuff for, for in the supplement industry because what I see from that is like a lot of it's really disconnected as well. Cause it's like the next big thing. It's like what's popular and mushrooms are really kind of in that space right now. It's like everybody is like popping out a new mushroom product and it's really just coming from like two different sources. And there's not a lot of connection to, to what the root of, of what, what they're really taking. And, and I believe too, from that, that that's a huge part of, health as well and and that's really kind of what drew me to to alchemy as well so i can you know kind of like give a little background into that here as well because you know when i was on that path of discovery i 
started studying permaculture, um, I was kind of like looking for that way of how do we kind of relate to place. And, and permaculture was that jumping off, off point for me and that recognition of place and, and looking at and the observation of the natural world, but also just what's, what's happening around you and how you connect to those things. And, and then the stories really evolved from that, right? Because that's kind of traditionally where those stories, where those traditions, where those rituals, where those practices evolved from were from the observation of the natural world. And, and so permaculture was kind of like the starting point for me, but it, it wasn't really my path within it. And so I, at that time heard about this uh, cool gathering that was happening, um, called the Radical Mycology Convergence. And it was the first year in 2010 um, that they were holding the Radical Mycology Convergence up, I think out in like Tenasket, uh, up in Northeastern Washington. And so I heard about it through that permaculture course that I was taking. I was like, oh, good, check that out, you know? And cause I had had like a peripheral interest in mushrooms, but I really didn't have a really direct day-to-day practice with them in my life yet at that point. And so I, went up to Tenasca and went to the first Radical Mycology Convergence and saw the mushrooms from so many different perspectives that I never looked at them from, from the ethnomycology perspective, from more of like a phytomycology perspective or like the medicinal aspects to like the biology of mushrooms to identification and foraging. And then just kind of like the community around them uh, of people, you know, as you know, you get like really interesting folks who are drawn to the mushrooms for one reason or another. And so the mushrooms kind of like reinvigorated themselves with me at that time and were a little bit stronger. And then I kind of delved more into a path of studying um, ethnomycology and ethnobotany and just kind of looking at the different ways that cultures relate to plants. And, and through that, there was kind of like a peaking interest in natural medicine um, and kind of like how do we relate to the plants as as medicines and it kind of started off as just like a curiosity in like the rudimentary form of like oh it's really cool like you can go out and pick this plant and it can help your body with all these different things and then really developed over the years into something that was much more tangible and seeing how to practice and seeing how to work with it and the mushrooms kind of just align themselves with that from that point and there was something for me that was kind of like missing from that you know that was like mm-hmm. it was like okay this is cool but i feel like herbalism and and natural medicine is more than like you know what's that plant good for what's that plant good for which i feel like a lot of people just get kind of stuck in that anthropomorphic anthrocentric perspective on right. plants and mushrooms and medicines and they're like oh well, what's good for me you know and and so i had this experience on the big island where I was introduced to alchemy and Ayurveda through one of my good friends at the time. He gave me two books and I took those books and started kind of like delving into alchemy. And I was like really curious about it. And, and I got back to the Pacific Northwest and I found this class on, on herbal alchemy and like beginning stages of herbal alchemy. And was like, Oh, cool. Cause for me, it's always like, much easier to learn more tangibly and, and directly from somebody. I, I mean, I love reading and kind of gleaning knowledge that way, but for me, it's always just the direct experience that that's more pertinent. So I went to this class and 
he went through the whole cosmology of the doctrine of signatures and correspondences and what they refer to as like the doctrine of emanations and through all of that, their stories. And then he kind of mentioned like, Oh, I just got back from studying with this guy, Robert Bartlett. I was like, Oh, that's the guy who wrote this book that I had just gotten, you know? And so I contacted them and ended up working and formed a multi-year relationship with Robert Bartlett um, up in Marysville, Washington. And he's been my main kind of teacher in the alchemical realm. But for me, it was a piece that was missing. So kind of tying back in to that launching off point of the stories, right, is like that was the piece that was missing from that herbal wisdom and that herbal knowledge because there's a cosmology that talks about the story of the natural world and the universe and how it kind of arose to what we see and experience and then how we kind of intelligently work with it through those perspectives and you're not just kind of like blindly throwing things together because you throw them together but it's more of like a crafted path based on the cosmology and the stories so there's a reason that you do everything that you do as opposed to just just being like oh well that's cool or that seems cool or maybe i'll just do this which has its place too but but i think that really kind of guided my path even more. And that's really what set me on to delving more deeply into natural medicine, studying the herbs and and through the alchemical tradition and through the Ayurvedic tradition, which is really interesting how they kind of like mirror each other, um, which we can get into a little bit later too, but there's processing of, of herbal medicines, there's processing of animals and there's processing of like the minerals or the metals as kind of being like the the peak of the alchemical tradition is is working with metals for for medicine and i was really curious where mushrooms fit into that picture because at that time i was still working with the mushrooms a lot and it was like there was like the herbs and then there was like the animals and you kind of work with them differently because they're on different scales of volatility and like they're different creatures and then i was like well mushrooms are like as you know, and as I'm sure most of the listeners know, uh, mushrooms are kind of like in between and they're actually more closely related to animals than they are to plants and their cell structure is completely different. So I was like, well, what if we like look at mushrooms as their whole own kind of realm as opposed to just tapping them on to plants or throwing them in with animals, um, which, you know, primarily in the alchemical tradition, they've just been kind of like tapped on to plants. So that is really where alchemycology and kind of like the beginnings of feral fungi and all that stuff launched off. So just to kind of like finish that part of the story. Yeah, expanding the alchemical lexicon. And I think so many people who are listening who are already interested in mycology, alchemy is definitely not a foreign concept. You know, we've looked at these ideas of ancient mysticism and storytelling. And I think a lot of people are guided to both searching for that kind of mooring or that kind of meaning in a society bereft of direction. These things seem to offer solutions and some kind of rationale, even though it's not rational, some kind of explanation of what's going on in the world, how we can orient ourselves. And when you talk about, you know, going to those supplement shows, it's so obvious how different aspects of kind of the modernist culture that aren't authentically trying to approach these concepts and are kind of doing the more commercial angle latch onto these things because they know people are hungry for that. So whether it's mycology and mushrooms or now alchemy is now showing up everywhere I look, everyone's using the word alchemy. And I think it's because marketers and different people know that this is something that people in this society are hungry for. And if we can just brand it, maybe they'll be interested. So Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to see this all bubble up 
in the collective consciousness. And I also want to tack on there that there's an important realization I think we all make that when it comes to natural medicines, I, I've had a lot of people tell me, you know, well, this thing about mushrooms being medicinal, I mean, it's nothing new. Plants being medicinal, they're the basis of a lot of our pharmaceuticals. Yes, but are those companies producing those products really approaching it from the kind of intention to really harness the maximal benefit from that organism? Are they demonstrating any kind of reciprocity with the organism? Yeah. You know, basically, is this is this the highest potential we could reach when it comes to working with mushrooms and plants as medicine? And I think for so many people, you realize like, no, I don't think this is the highest potential. And that yeah. leaves the door open for people like yourself and other producers who are becoming so knowledgeable about working with these organisms to really produce authentic, potent natural medicines. So birthed out of this marriage of mycology and alchemy is feral fungi. I mean, just to break down, when we talk about alchemy, what are some of the fundamental precepts? What, I've done some reading. I've read a little Manly P. Hall. I've looked at some sure. things. I don't really have a good cosmology in my head. So why don't you lay out the basics to us of, of what kind of hermetic alchemy even is? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, alchemy is one of the, the three pillars of the hermetic tradition. So alchemy, astrology, and Kabbalah being those, those three pillars of the hermetic tradition and the hermetic sciences is really what they uh, are referred to because it was all based on observation, right? And so, that's why I think it's really important to kind of pinpoint that word science because we've kind of like relegated science to something. It's like where, you know, you look at something in the lab, you have to have quantitative data to be able to analyze it. And if it doesn't have quantitative data, then it has no value. But there's a lot that we experience qualitatively that can be expressed through, you know, scientific measures just the same. So that alchemical tradition really evolved out of as far as we can trace it back ancient Egypt was kind of like the roots of alchemy so we get that term alchemy a lot of people are familiar with where that really comes from is is chem k-h-e-m or chemet is like what they referred to as like the black fertile plains of the Nile River uh, and the people of Egypt and then chemet was like what they referred to as the black arts or the arts of alchemy being kind of like one of the original bases or foundations of that kind of study of nature and the you know manipulation of nature through transmutation based off of observation. Later on, we get the al that's tapped on through the um, Arabic cultures through the kind of like journey that alchemy took. It's a really long story, um, you know, but basically under the pure persecution of the Roman Empire, alchemy had to kind of go underground um, where it was kind of maintained by the Arabic cultures at that time. And then it kind of resurfaced in Spain, I think about like the 8th century. Incredible. Yeah, so it's pretty pretty wild. But at that time too, in Egypt and Alexandria, there's a library of Alexandria. A lot of people are kind of like familiar with that to some degree, at least having heard of it. But it was like really this melting pot of culture from all over the world. And that's where it gets really interesting in correspondence with Ayurveda as well because there seemed to be a lot of interchange of knowledge and, and information. And alchemy is really what they refer to as a perennial philosophy, because it's like, no matter how you kind of tease it apart, it kind of holds true at the most basic levels. So, you know, when you're looking at the foundational aspects 
of alchemy, which is that kind of like cosmology that we were talking about initially, you get the doctrine of emanations, which is like everything arises from one thing, one source, and then is split into that duality. And that duality is positive, negative, masculine, feminine, light, dark. And then from that, those two, that polarity is kind of separated into the four elements and then those elements. So there's like these patterns um, that are kind of coming through emanations and those four elements form the, what are referred to as the three principles. And the three principles are kind of like the foundation of like everything that we can see is composed of these three principles, which are basically like the mind, the body, and the spirit in the alchemical language. It's the, the mind would be associated with um, the sulfur is what they call it. Um, the body would be like the salt and the spirit would be the mercury. So they call it the salt, the sulfur, and the mercury, but they represent those kinds of three philosophical um, interpretations. So a lot of times, if you kind of like look at the spagyric tradition and then natural medicine, then you're, you're, going to hear a lot about like the salt, sulfur, mercury, and these different kinds of obscured references sometimes. So, so that's kind of like a big piece of that alchemical puzzles. A lot of it was obscured throughout the ages. And so from that story, everything is composed of those three parts. So it's kind of like through that understanding and through that knowledge, if you can look at something and you say it's composed of the salt, sulfur, mercury, we can kind of tease those things apart purify them and then put them back together into a more rectified form or what Aristotle would refer to as like the substantial form. So it's kind of like his philosophy is everything is kind of striving for the substantial form and evolving towards that constantly. And so through our participation with the natural world, we're kind of able to help evolve things that are already on a trajectory of evolution and make them more fit for consumption as medicine, as well as a way of like purifying and rectifying those beings. So there's kind of a lot in there. And I think, you know, to yes. define, define alchemy and define the hermetic tradition, you know, it's basically is like an art of transmutation, right? And so that's one of the reasons too, that I really drew the strong connection between mushrooms and alchemy, because like what you're doing through the alchemical tradition is you're looking and observing nature and through that observation of nature, like for example, the art of distillation comes from observing how when you, when something dies in nature, plant dies, an animal dies, it starts to give what they refer to as like give up the ghost. And just the same way that rain is purified or water is purified through evaporation, condensation, and then coming back down onto the earth, it's kind of like a similar principle. So the whole idea is that if you're able to kind of capture that process in the microcosm of your flask or the microcosm of your lab, then you're able to kind of speed along that evolutionary process that's kind of already happening. And so there's a lot of philosophical foundation for, you know, why you do those things and why you look at those things. But really it comes into practice in making and producing functional medicines for people. It comes into practice in making full spectrum, high quality extracts that are really hitting people on all of the different levels and not just kind of like the most basic 
reductionist perspective of like, oh, well, if you run this through these like series of chemical reactions and you can extract that like one compound that we've decided is the one compound that's the functional compound. And to me, that's a really limited way of looking at it. But again, just kind of tying back is like mushrooms are that transmutative force of nature, right? Is they're like the primary decomposers in the natural world. When you look at the fungal algal relationships of lichen to break down, to break down rocks and to kind of create the first soil so that plants could even come out of the the nutrient rich broth of the sea and all of these ways that mushrooms kind of have like led the way for plants and for animals and for us to really exist on, on this earth and the transmutative role that they play in nature. So that was just kind of like from a philosophical perspective, you can kind of look at those three principles and the ways that those principles are represented in the natural world and you can kind of correspond how they represent themselves in mushrooms as well and that's a key you just brought up a key word which is a concept i believe within alchemy that's always fascinated me and that's this idea of correspondence so when you talk Mm -hmm. about that distillation you give the example of kind of water evaporating into rain clouds and how that happens in the microcosm of the flask i believe Mm -hmm. that's this idea of correspondence where you find these same fundamental truths or processes, you know, across different scales of reality, if you will. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, there's different ways. I feel like there's like observational correspondence where like something like looks like something else. And that was kind of like how I initially learned about the doctrine of signatures and correspondences was like, you know, the most common ones are like a walnut looks like the brain. So it, is good for your brain or like a carrot looks like an eye. So it looks like your eye. And I know that they work, you know, from my perspective, like a little bit of a limited way to work with the doctrine of signatures and correspondences. Cause then what you get into when you're like looking at it on the deeper levels are like more of the archetypal forces. And that kind of gets into working with like the different planetary correspondences and the different elemental correspondences and, and things like that. But through again, all of those arise through observation, right? And so through this practice of observation and understanding principles and ideas of like what makes something qualitatively that thing, you know, you can then correspond and and understand it on a more deep level. Yeah. I mean, I I just laid out a pretty big task to lay out the philosophical framework of alchemy. And I actually think you did a really good job of breaking that down to the point where someone like myself could even start to, to understand this. And what really stands out to me is that piece about observation. And it seems like this is very much a philosophy rooted in the human being as a fundamental part of this natural system. A lot of people acknowledge now that it's important to recognize ourselves as part of nature. And it very much seems like in this kind of view of reality, the human being has an essential role. And actually, the changes we make, as long as guided by kind of a beneficent intent, mm-hmm. are are positive, the changes we can make in our environment. Yeah, well, and like you're saying, it's like we are inseparable from our environment, right? So it's like as an observer, it's like you can't really remove yourself from the equation it just like from a philosophical perspective is just not really something that you can tangibly do which brings up all sorts of other questions but in regards to to that practice it's all based on observation and so 
I like to look at alchemy as well, as well as being like an art of transmutation and an art of change is like, it's a moving meditation and it's a moving prayer, right? So one of the kind of like primary axioms of the alchemical path is aura et labora, it's like pray and work. And so basically everything that you're doing in the lab is like this moving meditation. It's this moving prayer and it's this kind of like this intertwined connection to the material that you're working on right so you also get that as above so below as within so without so with that as well it's like everything that you're doing externally is then reflecting and and is playing a part in your internal development as well so it's like you don't look at it from the mere limited perspective of like oh yeah it's like here's this thing i'm going to go affect change and i'm going to make this thing better it's like no i'm like working on myself and simultaneously, it's like working on this thing, but I'm kind of like internalizing that medicine as I'm making it externally because the processes, the calcinations, like the burning of the material to get the mineral salts, the distillations to kind of like circulate the material, all of those things are reflecting this inner process, which is kind of, I think, one of the ways that alchemy got lost along the way, especially with, you know, new age thoughts starting in like the late 1800s was oftentimes the alchemical path and the alchemical um, processes were relegated primarily to being a metaphor for something spiritual or being a metaphor for something psychological, especially due to a lot of Jung's work. But that kind of moves out the laboratory practice of alchemy that preceded that. And and that's also where it kind of really bugs me a lot of times the way that that term gets overused because it's like people don't really understand that there's like a practical application of laboratory alchemy that still exists to this day and still is like practiced and still work with. And that just because you call something alchemical is it like kind of loses its meaning, you know, as like a happens with a lot of things these days. I think that's such an important point you just brought up, that idea of there is a physical component to this practice. There is there is potentially, I mean, physiological, definitely, you know, emotional, energetic, spiritual change, however you want to quantify that, but the, the physical activity imbues these changes. So that is a critical part of the process. And I think mm -hmm. most people have heard this idea of turning lead into gold. And when I'm thinking of that, this idea of doing lab work through that process of trying to purify a metal into gold, you would be doing that same work on your inner body. Exactly. A really, really, really powerful concept. Yeah. And, the, and it's, I think it's directly connected. And I think, again, it kind of gets put into that realm of like, what is your intention with that? If your intention is to just have a bunch of gold, you know, it's like, I don't think you're going to really get very far with that process because that kind of illuminates that there's some kind of shortcoming within yourself of like what your end goals are and, and what your intentions are with the material and with the practice that it's like for some purpose that isn't really ultimately altruistic or, or good um and is is more coming from a place of like greed or some kind of like maybe what people would refer to as like lower resonant spaces whereas you know if you're looking to make the most potent medicine and you're able to transmute that led into gold or even even make various forms of what what is known as the philosopher's stone which theoretically can transmute lead into gold but is also used as like a, a really potent medicine and again that's kind of where 
the alignment with the Ayurvedic tradition comes in as well, because, you know, alchemy is great. And coming from like a Western perspective, you know, it's, you can kind of tune into it and you can kind of like get an idea of what's going on. And there's some great teachers out there and there's some like mystical traditions that kind of carry it on. But when you look at the history and where it came from, it's like the alchemical tradition was broken many points along the way and was kind of obfuscated. It was kind of held in like priest class and wasn't really shared openly with people. And then from the Roman persecution, it had to kind of go undercover. And then people used a lot of obfuscated language with it and kind of like had to covertly practice the alchemical tradition. So they're saying one thing, you know, talking about like the green dragon or something like that when they're really referring to another process or the gray wolf and they're talking about antimony. So there's these kinds of things where it really gets confused and and lost and then you have to interpret it and then you do your best to interpret it and then you try to replicate it. But in the Ayurvedic tradition is like that lineage was never broken. And again, as far as we can trace that back, it goes back 5,000 years or more handed to the people by Indra at the at Mount Kailish, you know, and, and there's that long tradition from then the different family lineages have carried that on and it still exists today. But the reason I'm bringing it up, up too is because they also work with the, the metals as well and they make medicines out of the metals. So they work with lead and they work with mercury and they work with gold. And when you purify them properly, they become some of like what, you know, is known in Rasha Shastra, which is a specific kind of branch of Ayurveda as like some of the most potent medicines. And there's kind of like an idea behind that, that since the minerals are so fixed and have taken so long to develop, like you think of a plant and how a plant grows or a mushroom and how a mushroom grows and how it takes all of this time. And it's like, usurping things from the environment and then it's transmuting them into different constituents in the form of primary metabolites and secondary metabolites and then you think of of a mineral that takes hundreds of thousands of years sometimes to grow into that form and then when you can process that and unlock that medicine there's a much deeper potential there but also on kind of like the opposite side of that is like if you process it and you don't process it properly, then it's really toxic still. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's kind of like a double-edged sword, but it all kind of goes to say again that, again, Ayurveda as well is based on this practice and this process of observation and observation over like long, long periods of time. And then that shared wisdom that comes from that. And what's so interesting about both these worldviews is it's this blend of spirituality, science, practical observation. You know, there's there's so much melded that it really becomes all-encompassing. You know, whether you're Mm -hmm. talking about alchemy or Ayurveda, you're not talking about, it sounds like, one specific practice or now I'm practicing Ayurveda. I mean, this is really an all-encompassing lifestyle, if you will, where suddenly you're seeing through that lens – in your day-to-day life, or at least that's how I'm interpreting these principles. As we're speaking, I'm starting to see things more through these models and these perspectives. Yeah. A lens is a really good way to put it because it's a, it's a perspective on life, right? It's like, again, when you're approaching something from that kind of like limited perspective that we were talking about, that's pretty pervasive in, in the natural supplement world is like, oh, turmeric's the next next big thing. Oh, reishi's the next big thing. Oh, chaga's the next big thing. And people just kind of like glom onto these things. But when you're looking at something 
through like the lens of Ayurveda or the lens of the alchemical tradition is like, you're looking at that whole thing and you're looking at somebody through that lens of that whole person. And that's everything. Like that's their upbringing. That's the traumas that they've experienced through their life. That's the kind of imbalances in their diet they have. That's looking at every single part of that person and saying like, Oh, well, you know, reishi is good for a lot of things and a lot of people, but it's like, maybe reishi is like not the right thing for you because of X, Y, and Z, you know, I'm not thinking of an example off the top of my head, but you can get really specific. A really good example of that is like turmeric. You know, a lot of people are like, yeah, turmeric for everything is really good for inflammation and on and on. And and one of my good, good friends and colleagues and teachers, uh, Seja Popham talks about this a lot. I studied herbalism with him too. And we've, we've done a lot together on like kind of the alchemical path. And, you know, he talks a lot of like, Turmeric's a really hot herb from kind of like a constitutional standpoint. And it's like, if you've got a lot of pitta or fire or like heat in your constitution, it's like you're not going to do very well with, with turmeric. And so it's going to be aggravating to somebody who has that kind of more fiery constitution. And it's not going to help. It's not going to help their inflammation and their arthritis and the things that it's kind of touted for helping because it's not a specific way of looking at it. And I guess this kind of gets moving kind of more into the mushrooms and how I work with them as well. Cause I, I work with all the mushrooms through that perspective and that lens. And it's like first time picking up a book on medicinal mushrooms. It's like, man, these things are used for everything. It's like, I could use any of these mushrooms to solve any problem. And it's like, you really can to a large degree. And there's, there's reasons for that. You know, there's like the polysaccharides in of themselves, which are, what are known as a primary metabolite is like they make up the cell wall of the mushroom. They're extremely diverse in the, the types of things that they help with because they're like these building blocks for our body to kind of like build what they need. But beyond that and beyond that kind of like general use and application, you know, you can get really specific with how you see things and how you work with things and I try to kind of like bring that perspective again. I kind of try and take that lens through my work with the alchemical tradition, through my work with the Ayurvedic tradition. And I put that on to the mushrooms and kind of like look at their constitution, look at how they grow, look at how I understand them, look at how I see them in the environment and see what they look like when we're processing them, what the final product looks like. Cause all of them are so different when you are like really in that and when you're really kind of honoring them and respecting them like that and then you can really see how to more effectively administer them to people as well you know so again kind of like another example of that you could have somebody come to you and say like oh i've got like kidney issues what's good for me you know it's like okay well tell me a little bit more about like what's going on with your kidneys and they're like oh well you know i've got like adrenal fatigue and i'm tired a lot and i just like don't feel a lot of energy and then like my kidneys have just been bothering me and then you might lean more towards something like cordyceps versus something like turkey tail which also has an affinity for the kidneys and kidney health because the cordyceps is going to also kind of be more correspondent with that like vital health and it's going to give them that energy as well and so you look more specifically instead of just being like well i heard this one was good for kidneys so take that so you can get really like specific and in, in how you do that and that's kind of also part of why we include those planetary correspondence with them. For me, it's a fun kind of philosophical thing to do as well as a fun way for me to relate to and understand the mushrooms on a more deep level. 
but also from like a practical perspective, it's like, okay, how do we like direct these things to be even more effective than they already are? Cause like without doing anything. And again, all of the, the things that I've said about the supplement industry and all that kind of stuff is like the mushrooms, the herbs that you work with, they still have their own intelligence and they're still going to be effective. But I think it's like through this kind of relational process that we can make them even more effective and, and be in right relationship that just kind of creates more harmony. And then, and then they understand they connect to that too. And there's a lot of layers here, but a fundamental piece is that idea of signatures and correspondences, which mm-hmm. I know so many people resonate with. You, you use the great example with walnuts. People say the same about lion's mane. It looks like a brain. Yeah. It's good for your brain. We yeah. all like that kind of thing. But then when you get to these deeper archetypal correspondences, uh, and yeah, a lot of them, it seems like are based or corresponded to different planetary energies, mm-hmm. you know, how do you, is it mostly intuitive? You kind of hinted at it, like the life cycle, what they look like at different stages. How do you figure out some of these deeper kind of archetypal resonances? And then it sounds like also you need to consider that at all levels from the thing you're working with to the person you're working with to, you know, you have to kind of match archetypal resonances once you even establish what each one is. So, uh, so yeah, maybe talk about how you find those deeper kind of archetypal correspondences and then that process of trying to, to match them up. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's really multifaceted. You know, there's not really one answer because it's kind of a combination. Like part of it is like, yeah, it kind of looks like a brain. So, you know, it's correspondent to the brain in that regard. But then the other part is you're looking at the whole morphology. So you're looking at like, what color is it? You're looking at what kind of characteristics does it have as it grows? Um, even when I was like doing the charts initially, I was working closely with Peter McCoy of Radical Mycology and we were like looking at different specimens of mycelium and like looking at how the mycelium grows. And then you look at the environments that it grows in. Um, I look at kind of like the traditional associations, like physiological associations that it has, like if it's good for nerve health, if it's good for your liver, for your kidneys, kind of like scientifically what's been proven or, or, or shown in that regard. And then a part of it is intuitive as well. And then I think it, it gets even more complex than that too, when you say, well, I don't think that there's like one right answer and kind of like what I try to do in the alchemycology section of, of the radical oncology book is like, look, here's the doctrine of signatures and here's like a little jumping off point on how to work with it. And then here's some correspondences that I've made, which some of them have changed since then and make your own correspondences based on like what your relationship is to that thing right again it's kind of like how how we're looking at at things through the lens of alchemy and through the lens of ayurveda and you know use these terms but really it's like looking at them through the lens of life it's like you're looking at a whole thing it's like when i look at you and like talk to you it's like you know i'm talking to darren the host of mushroom hour podcast but it's like you're a whole person and like you've got your whole life and your whole way that you see things and the way that you perceive things and the way that you do things outside of your podcast and all of these different things that make you who you are. And so to relegate you to that one, like simple reductionistic perspective of you is not really an accurate representation of you. And so when we say looking at something through the lens of alchemy or the lens of Ayurveda is like, we're really looking at it through the lens of life because we're looking at the whole, whole thing. Right. And so I really like, there's this uh, Swiss physician um, named Paracelsus, and he has this great quote. I always butcher it when I try and try and say it, but basically what he's saying is like, 
when you understand the qualities of Venus, you understand the qualities of Artemisia or mugwort. And when you understand the qualities of Artemisia or mugwort, you understand the qualities of Venus. And so it's this kind of like reciprocal understanding, this reciprocal lens through which you're perceiving the natural world. And he says the same thing about like iron and Mars. It's like when you understand the qualities of iron, you understand Mars and vice versa. And so when you're looking at things for their whole nature, you can see these emanating patterns and then you can kind of like connect the dots. And so that's kind of like a really general overview about how I how I do that with the mushrooms. But take lion's mane, for example, and kind of like take what you said as that as that starting point or that jumping off point of like, right, lion's mane, you know, you cut it and it kind of looks like a brain if you cut it in the right direction. And uh, it has those like tendrils, which kind of look like nerves. And, and so there's like that connection to the nervous system. And then we know through various studies that it's really helpful for the nervous system. And then it's kind of like white and bulbous and like really watery, really heavy water content. Like when you dry out lion's mane, it's like a tenth of the weight. It loses probably more water than almost any of the other mushrooms that we work with. And there's this voluptuous nature of it, just like the way that you see it and like the flowing and like the roundness. And then for me, that's like a really clear correspondence to the moon, right? Because it has this like direct effect on the brain it has a direct effect on the stomach, right? And that's like one of the things that often gets overlooked with the benefits of lion's mane is it, its benefits for the digestive tract too. So just in that, it's a pretty strong correspondence to the moon. But then when you consider like the white color and the kind of yellowish color that it gets sometimes, and then you consider the water content, and then you consider like the nervous system benefits as well. It's like all of those things kind of go together to create this whole picture of of this mushroom and its connection to to that kind of planetary body right and so really what the foundation of it for that is like you have to you have to have like some basic understanding of the planets and the planetary energies and then some of their traditional correspondences and and like understand that for a long time in medicine you know a lot of the early physicians and herbalists and doctors would consider a doctor or physician who studied medicine without the consultation of the stars to be completely in depth and like not worth their salt, you know, so to speak. I think uh, Nicholas Culpepper has gone so far as to say like to he who practices physique without knowledge of the stars is like a lamp without oil, you know, and which in like the 1500s was a pretty, pretty harsh burn, but, (laughs) but you look at these kinds of correspondences and then, you know, it's one of the trickier things to, to overcome and to understand because there's not a lot again of foundational, like you can't just go to a book and read like, you know, how do you come to planetary correspondences? I mean, I think more of that information is coming out as people are kind of talking about it more, you know, Seja does a really good job of, of some of that stuff. If people are interested, his like podcast, the plant path is a great resource in his book. Alchemical herbalism is, is also great, but traditionally is like, you look at these old books, these old texts on, on herbs and medicine and is like, like mugwort is associated with Venus. And then it doesn't say anything of, of like how they came to that or why they came to that. So 
you kind of have to get that foundational understanding of like what those planets were traditionally correspondent with. You look at kind of like the astrological, um, we call it like the astrological man. That's like where the planetary energies are kind of sourced in the bodies. You can look at like the Kabbalah and kind of like what associations are, are in those places. And then through that, you kind of create these relational understandings that can help you to be even more effective as a practitioner, because then what you're doing I think there's a really like directly observational and intuitive level of being able to work with that where you can kind of see and you can kind of see in the person and you can just work with it directly without having to kind of like intellectually consult all of that information. But also you can get really specific with it too, where it's like you can draw somebody's birth chart and see what planets are transiting their birth chart. And based on like where weaknesses are happening or based on where like, contrary planets are kind of like rubbing against each other or based on where their strengths are you can kind of see that and you can use these as what would be known as like planetary remedials for something like that and get even more specific and then you can even take what's known as like a decumbiture chart from somebody's like the time that they got sick and you can look at what those planetary transits were at that time and you can kind of draw, again, some of those same conclusions. So it's like you look at some of the malefic planets like Saturn or like Mars, where Saturn's going to be like cold and restrictive and Mars is going to be like hot and expansive. So it's like if you've got like Mars crossing over like your your natal Mercury, for example, it's like maybe you have like hot phlegmy like respiratory things going on and so you can say like oh well you know i would probably want to like throw something cooling at that and want to kind of like address it with that so you can kind of like look at it from that perspective and again looking at it with all of these different layers of information is like oh well i know that this is really good for all these different things but i can get really specific and say like oh this herb is going to like really do the job here because not only is it you know, have an affinity for the respiratory tract, but also it has that all those correspondences with like mercury and that's going to strengthen the respiratory system here. And maybe like we want to put some like lunar energy in there to cool it down and moisten it a little bit. And, and you can kind of look at things from, from that perspective to really deepen the way that you see and that you practice with the medicines that you, you make and administer to people. I really appreciate you diving into that example and giving your thought process behind it because you invoked an example that I've come across many times where I see something in a book, the correspondence is through a certain planet Mm -hmm. and they don't have any explanation. And you're like, kind of, how do we get there? And I think you do eventually develop this sense of planetary kind of energetic resonance, if you will. And I know already, you know, there are people that 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 word gets thrown around a lot. It may sound kind of nebulous. But to me, energetic resonance is something that comes really through intense observation and understanding. And what you're talking about in assessing something really works kind of the brain. It's not muscles, but works your brain in a way that isn't linear reductionist thought. It's trying to take these multi kind of dimensional facets of something, like you're saying, the complete person, the Mm -hmm. complete plant, the complete mushroom, and trying to build this picture in your head. And I'm sure there's a term for it, but it's not an entirely rational process. It's not something that's entirely even explicable. You just kind of get this sense of it by like 
building in all the data, a picture emerges and you can't even exactly explain why. And it sounds like a lot of this is about that is intense observation, understanding that kind of leads you to this place where you identify oh, this is the the energetic resonance of this thing that has me corresponding it to something else. And, and to me, the planets seem like one of the more fundamental parts of this where you can fall back on past research, where different traditions, different people have put together an idea of kind of the baseline understanding I think we have about the energetic resonance of planets. And those are helpful archetypes then to tie to once you identify your object, it's you can kind of pick from what kind of energies like like you did so well. And it's something that I know a lot of people resonate with, even though we can't always explain it as well as you did. We, but we know that like planets in a certain position, they represent these archetypal energies. And when they're in these certain arrangements, it has an effect on things down here. You know, that's the fundamental tenets of astrology. And I, I don't know, it seems to me to have more grounding in observation mm -hmm. and kind of the scientific method as we traditionally think of it, that then people might give it credit for. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think it's like you said, I think you're working with all your faculties to understand and, and see those things because you're not just saying like, Oh, well, you know, I read my horoscope and like this thing seems to be in line because they said that it's like, no, you, you're using your observational faculty to see how that's presenting itself. And you're looking at qualitative features, which again, is kind of like tying back to what we were talking about in the beginning, where it's like, oftentimes like qualitative understanding of reality just gets kind of like pushed to the side because like, you don't yeah. have quantitative data, but I think the way moving forward is that you look at both of those things, right? It's like, we're going to look at the amount of polysaccharides and heresinones and aranacines and get really heady with the language because it makes me sound cooler and, and I know what I'm talking about. But then you also are looking at the whole picture of that mushroom and like where it comes from and how it presents itself. And you're like looking at, well, this is like this small, small portion, like, Aracenones, aranacines, polysaccharides, the amount that we know of primary and secondary metabolites from the mushrooms is like so limited as to what they really are. And that that again kind of ties back into why I think it's it's really important to work with them more holistically and also regard them and, and understand them more holistically, because I think we live in a really reductionistic society that tends to say, like, oh, well, if you can't quantify that with numbers and, and show me the numbers then it doesn't exist, which we all know is not true. It's like how much of our experience is relegated to, you know, something that can be quantitatively re reconciled. It's not very much, you know, it's like, <laughs> so I think there's that kind of disconnect that happens, especially when you move into natural medicine and supplements. And then, and then when you're looking at something through that and you're looking at cordyceps as cordycepin, or you're looking at reishi as ganoderic acids, it's like you're missing the point of like what's really going on with those medicines. Because there's, like I said, it's like, that's like saying like all you are is a podcast host, which is not absolutely not true. Again, just kind of like going back to that misses like the whole point. And I think that again, it's like, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and like using the great information that we've gotten through 
quantitative analysis on those different sets of primary and secondary metabolites, but it's also then kind of looking at and knowing and seeing what we feel intuitively and connecting to it on that level as well, because it is both. And it, and it's when you're reductionistic, you kind of throw that out. And as we know from a ph- pharmaceutical perspective, is like that's when things become really potentially hazardous and dangerous. And, and that's when you get like really bad side effects is like when you take a plant out of the Amazon and then you extract that one compound from that plant that works great in synergy with all the other compounds that are pulled out in a tea that have been made that way for thousands of years and you know are used as medicine and effective as medicine and you look at that and you say oh well no it's like this one single compound and then you isolate it and extract it it no longer has the connection to the rest of the plant or the buffer of maybe some of the other things that are naturally inherent in the plant that also kind of get drawn out and so it kind of creates all these other potential issues and and problems. And I think that, again, is kind of like the limit of the scientific method and the scientific perspective in my mind, because it's like, again, what we know is like so limited. It's like we know through a traditional model that these things are much more effective and have been effective for thousands of years for the things they're effective for. And just because, you know, science can quantitatively say like, oh yeah, there's promising research that heresinones actually increase nerve growth factor and heresinones are present in lion's mane. It doesn't mean that's the only thing in lion's mane that's affecting the nerves or like working with the nerves. And I think it's really limited and, and kind of dangerous to start to get into that kind of like reductive mindset and perspective. And yeah. I think I really like what one of my teachers, my Ayurvedic teacher, he's a his multiple generations of Ayurvedic practitioners in Nepal and the Kathmandu Valley. And, you know, he said to me at one point, it was like, he's like, what's more scientific, what we're doing with these herbs that we've studied for thousands of years or the modern pharmaceuticals, which have been studied for less than a hundred years, you know? And again, it's not, it's not to say that pharmaceuticals are bad and, and they're like Western medicine has its place. And there's like, there's a place for everything. But again, it's much less, time tested in comparison to some of these old traditional medicines. Yes. And you brought up such a a brilliant theme, which is this idea of the human faculties to appreciate and understand qualitative data. You know, Mm -hmm. it might be the quantitative. Yes, it's really useful, but inherently limited by the tools we can use to quantify. Whereas human beings have inherent technologies that let us pick up qualitative inklings and data, and maybe our vessel is the only thing that can do that. So to throw that out kind of throws out some, maybe some of our most powerful observational tools. So I I love you breaking this down and it offers a really deep perspective on, you know, what, what is science? And especially right now in this era where the word science, do you believe in science? Do you, you know, understandings of science are constantly called into question, but I think are shifting to this more holistic understanding of not dismissing the anecdotal, not dismissing the time-tested, not dismissing the qualitative. Well, I do want to at least touch on this idea of the spagyric process. So I know that pulls from this alchemical tradition of distillation. You're taking the constituent pieces apart and Mm -hmm. recombining. So explain a little bit that spagyric process and what that means for the final medicinal extract. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, that term spagyric uh, was actually coined by that Swiss physician Paracelsus or Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, I think was, you know, his full name. Um, 
alchemical figures <laughs> always have some amazing name hermes trismegistus yeah. or that yeah. one you know it's always something amazing yeah totally so basically he loved to kind of make up words and and it comes from greek so spow is to separate and agiro is to recombine or i've actually heard it more accurately translated as like to reawaken and so basically what you're doing is you're separating your material into the three component parts, the three principles that we talked about earlier of the salt, the sulfur, and the mercury. You're purifying those principles, and then you're putting them back together. So I'll kind of like run you through a couple different iterations of what this looks like, because I think it kind of helps to give a perspective on it. But first would be the most simple is you are making like what's known as like a spagyric tincture. So you use the mercury, um, which would be like the volatile spirit from that realm. In our case, you know, when we're working with mushrooms, we use alcohol and then we use water, which is also known as a universal menstruum. And we, with that spirit, with that mercury, we're pulling the sulfur out of the mushrooms the sulfur is going to be like the secondary metabolites the primary metabolites so like the the polysaccharides the different ganoderic acids the cortisepins the heresinones things like that and then they're kind of in a solution that's what gives the tincture its color you know it's like even if you do this with a plant it's like where we get that term spirit when we talk about alcohol comes from this alchemical tradition right because when you ferment and then distill plant material, you yield ethanol or some variation of ethanol. And so that ethanol is going to be like the universal spirit of the plant realm, right? And so with that universal spirit of the plant realm, we're able to draw the sulfur. And then so you've got your like standard tincture. And then that's kind of like where most people leave it. We take it a step further through this figuric process by then taking the material that we've extracted and then burning it down into a really fine ash and then soaking that ash in like distilled water or vinegar and then filtering off all of the kind of coarse ash material and then recrystallizing, like evaporating the, the water or the vinegar and recrystallizing the mineral salts. You can see a lot of, you know, we have some pictures and stuff of some different um, minerals, salts and process on our um, Instagram and our website. But we're re recrystallizing it and then we're putting that back into the final tincture. So it's completely in the form that it was when we started separating it. Now it's just been refined because all of those principles have been kind of exalted and purified to a degree. And through that purification process, now it's more absorbable in your body and more accessible for your body to kind of glean the, the goodness from. So that's kind of like the redacted version that's kind of like the simplified yeah. version of like what a spagyric is i have kind of like my own adapted process that i've come up with with um, working with the mushrooms um, which includes using a soxlid extractor as that kind of primary extraction piece and the biggest difference between just like a standard dual extract besides like the fact that we're able to capture more of the volatiles that you would lose in not the same type of reflux process that we do is that you get the mineral salts of the mushrooms and i think of them as like a complex of trace minerals again kind of looking at things from that scientific language and that scientific side it's a complex of trace minerals and we know from that scientific understanding that trace minerals actually help with cell absorption of other various different compounds and things that we need and so i think that there's something 
in that in regards to mushrooms and herbs that that make those spagyric tinctures um, more effective than just like a standard tincture and then again from the philosophical perspective you're also getting the body so you think of like a standard tincture without the mineral salts in there is like you've got essentially kind of like a disembodied soul and spirit it's kind of like floating around and the mineral salts would be like the vehicle to help kind of like drive it to where it needs to go in your physical bodies like we're physical beings we've got our bodies and then that mineral salt just kind of helps carry it so from that spagyric method is like we haven't lost anything in, in our process the only waste right. that we have at the end is like a little bit of carbon material that gets filtered out and even that is like i set that aside and we use it for other processes known as um, what are called elixirs the uh, more traditional elixirs or elixirs um, which is like an ash-based powdered medicine um, where you basically then imbibe that with the tincture until it absorbs all the tincture and then you keep powdering it and then you've got like a more of like what would be referred to as a fixed form of that medicine. So again, that's kind of like the most basic level. And then it's always interesting to talk about these things because I think it sounds way more complicated than it is because the best way to learn and to understand is just to practice it and to do it because you learn a lot through seeing it. And I think a lot of people like to kind of like put themselves on this pedestal and be like, oh, I know how to do spagyrics. And it's like, yeah, it's like the actions are pretty simple to follow through with. And it teaches you a lot through the process. And like I said, it's like, I don't really take a lot of medicines on a day-to-day -day basis you know, one, because I don't think it's necessary. And two, I've, I've also like internalized a lot of those things through that process and through observing and through watching. Again, it's kind of like working internally. So then taking that to the next step, you know, it's a little bit more complicated with mushrooms. I also kind of lay this out and lay out some different kind of um, proposed theories on how to do this in, in the alchemycology section of radical mycology. And some of them work pretty well some of them not as well but basically what you're doing is you're taking the mushrooms fresh mushrooms fermenting them you know i've had success just fermenting them with like distilled water um, sometimes you could add like dextrose or you could add some sort of like sugar in there to kind of help the fermentation process i found that that doesn't always work uh, one thing that i've done too is like make them with like a mead and then you distill off the spirit from that alcohol or that solution because when you when you're working with just the mushrooms and you ferment just the mushrooms it's not alcohol and so that's one reason that we don't really like provide true mushroom spagyrics is because we don't really know what it's producing at that point you know i've had some different uh, analysis run on some stuff and we're just like there's like five primary compounds in here that are not water and not alcohol but we're not sure what they are and i don't want to just give people that i mean intuitively it it seems probably safe but from kind of like a practical level and where we are with our production and everything it just isn't realistic but you ferment and then you distill off the spirit and then you've got your mercury your pure mercury and then you would ideally rectify that about at least seven times you do redistill it until you get a really clean pure mercury and then you have your material you want to pull an oil from it with plants usually you start the process with this and you you would distill off the essential oil through like a steam distillation with mushrooms it's not really so easy so we use what's called an alkahest um, which is like a kind of a universal solvent or we'll use some other more industrial solvents 
even alcohol works for this process to pull the oil from the mushrooms again getting the sulfur and then you evaporate that down to get like a pure oil from the mushrooms and then the salts of the same process you burn it all down and then you consolidate any of the alcohol that you didn't distill so all the kind of like what would be left in the boiling flask from a distillation process you boil that down into like a tarry paste you burn it with the mushroom material until you get the fine ashes and then you leach the salts from those ashes and then you've got the pure salt in the form of the pure mineral salts of the mushroom material the pure sulfur in the in the form of the um oils from the mushroom and then the pure mercury in the form of the spirit whether it's kind of like a infused spirit or however however it kind of comes across but then you put those together and the idea behind that is that you've got the the mushroom that you started with you got the mushroom material and they're recombined into this much more concentrated and elevated medicine and one of the ways that one of my teachers really expressed it to me was like instead of getting like the accidental form so imagine like nettle or something growing in the middle of this like desolate field and maybe there's like pesticides or maybe there's like all these things that are kind of affecting the growth of that nettle and so you get some intelligence from the nettle and you get some things that are just a little bit off through the accidental forms it's kind of like in people i look at it as like trauma you know it's like the trauma that it endures in its life cycle that keep it from being the most pure form of itself and then you strip all that away and you strip away the the impurities in the body and you strip away the impurities in the way that it presents itself. And now you have like an archetypal form of metal. And that's kind of like what you're getting with the full spagyric is kind of like an archetypal form of itself that is kind of working on, on more of a universal level. And then it's also hitting like this mind, body and spirit of the person as well. Um, so, I look at spagyric tinctures as kind of like a crude form of that. And then, I mean, you can take it even further. It's like you can then take those three principles that you've purified, right? And then you can take the pure crystalline mineral salts and slowly digest them in a warm temperature around 90 degrees and slowly ingest them with the sulfur and the mercury. And over time, it will congeal into like a what they refer to as like a stone. And that stone is like a super potent form of that medicine and so there's all these different ways that you can kind of like play with the the preparations that you get once you've got the i look at the kind of foundational understanding and and philosophies of like uh paints you know and and then like what you can do with them at the end is like the paintbrush and like your art that you can create because because there's so many different things and, and like you can get really crazy with it. It's like you can do like fractional distillation of, of water and then you could like extract different parts of the medicine with the different fractions of the water and you can get like the elemental parts of the water and then you can get the principles of the water. And then you have like, what does that work out to? It's like three times four is like 12 different fractions of water that all, you know, appear to just be distilled water. But when you really look at them, they kind of, fundamentally act different and again that's kind of where that qualitative understanding comes in over the quantitative because it's like any normal scientist is just going to look at that and be like oh it's just 12 different vials of water but through my own experience and through what i've seen and, and through some things that i've heard about that too it's like the four elemental parts of the water will act completely differently so you can get like really really crazy specific and then again drawing in those planetary correspondences 
you can work with each day of the week is associated with um, one of the different inner seven planets and you can kind of hear it inherent in the language. Uh, the latter part of the week is kind of weird because we stole it from the Norse uh, mythology, but it still corresponds to so like Sunday is ruled by the sun. Monday is ruled by the moon. Tyr is the god of war in, in Norse mythology and Tyr's day, Tuesday, Tuesday is associated with Mars. Wednesday, Odin's day, Odin's associated with Mercury. Wednesday is associated with Mercury. Thursday, Thor's day, Thor is associated with Jupiter. Freya's day, Friday, Freya is associated with Venus. Um, Saturday, Saturn. And then in other languages too, like Spanish, you know, you can hear the different planets and the names a lot more directly. So yeah. it's interesting like that. And then you can kind of like, again, draw a little bit more of that effectiveness. And like, if you're like working with and you're like, okay, I want this medicine to be a medicine for the nervous system. And so it's like, oh, well, do you want it to be for like brain health? Or do you want it to be for like more electrical aspects of the nervous system, which would be more associated with mercury? And so maybe I'll start my process in like the moon hour of Monday to kind of draw in some of those influential um, things from that planetary influence. Mm. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna use that example, lion's mane, which we talked about earlier, having that mm -hmm. correspondence to moon energy. Mm -hmm. So we talk about picking a day, trying to kind of exert some kind of planetary influence. Would it be more based on the effect you're trying to achieve, the mushroom you're working with, a blend, again, kind of an intuitive blend of both? It kind of, yeah, it kind of depends. I mean, you can, like, for what we do with feral fungi, we, we keep it pretty basic, um, and we, we work with the planetary days and the planetary hours to kind of start the extraction, um, and then it kind of goes multiple days, so you're getting kind of like the full picture of those different planets in there, but then you could be really specific and you can like look and say like oh well the full moon is going to be really strong in this position and it's going to be like opposite of venus here and we need to like cure this like venus energy so maybe i'll like start the extraction here and let it reflex over here and again that's if you're getting like really really specific with it and able to kind of take that time you know on a commercial level it's not really viable but you just kind of do the best you can so we work with the days of the week and then also like the hours the planetary hours of the day to try and stay within that as best as possible and again it's the intention that you're putting into it it's the thought that you're putting into it it's like the way that we are are respecting and honoring those mushrooms as living beings through that and just taking that extra step of intention it's like most people who take our extracts probably have no idea that we're even doing that, you know, but, but for us, it matters um, to kind of take those extra, extra levels and those extra steps and in, into what we're doing. Absolutely. And I'm sure people intuitively can feel there's some kind of difference. And then uh, Jason is the practitioner, the rest of your team, who's going through this process of kind of separating the critical elements recombinating them you're doing that inside yourself that many times mm -hmm. i mean how has this process changed you i know you already had this relationship with alchemy you're already a seeker when it comes to ayurveda alchemy these practices but how specifically has working with alchemycology reflected a change in you and then when we're talking about this worldview and i know you kind of said you know we keep it pretty simple here none of this sounds that simple i think for most <laughs> listeners you know mm -hmm. How then does your life 
reflect this worldview? I mean, are you planning, I would assume, life events based on these principles, these timings? So yeah, how has this process of working with alchemycology changed you? And then how much of your life kind of integrates these these principles? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I think, uh, where it comes in as being simple is like it's really not me you know it's like i'm i'm following the mushrooms right and so mm. i try to like take that step back and i try to do everything that i do in a really humble way like because it's not really me and any of it can be taken away at any time and so with that acknowledgement and with that kind of understanding is like i do my best to just listen to the mushrooms and like listen to like what they want and what they are needing and then the lessons they have to show us i mean as like the myriad of people that you've had on your show have their own relationship to the mushrooms and the, the ways that they work with them from mycoremediation to medicine to every step along the way so i just try to acknowledge them in that way and you know i i'll look at the astrological stuff sometimes you know that's definitely not my strong suit and i think i live most of my life pretty intuitively and just kind of trusting that that stuff is going to happen anyway and to just kind of like listen to the patterns you know sometimes i'll, I'll, I'll take that advice if it's there but but also it's like especially when it comes to, to making medicine for people is like can't be like have somebody who comes to you and like i'm really sick and i need help be like oh well sorry the planets just are not looking like they're aligned right now and it's not going to be that way for another three months it's like no that person needs help now and so so i think there's like part of it just like finding an intuitive balance and i think the simplicity comes in is like you can make it as complicated as you want but i think that there's like a beauty in the simplicity and the beauty in the simplicity of like recognizing life and recognizing the patterns in life and ultimately kind of like everything that we've been talking about just like comes back to that and so again it's just kind of like empowering yourself and empowering like your qualitative faculties like you were talking about how those things kind of get overlooked and those things don't really get developed a lot of times in the kind of modern and modernistic society because those things aren't valued what's valued are, are you know like the hundred thousand dollar mass spec machine that is going to tell you exactly what's in that thing when really you know a lot more than you do and so i think that's a simple the simplicity of it right is is right there well and i really like that perspective in that you don't always need to you know have your metaphorical magnifying glass over every pattern of the fabric of reality but <laughs> being in tune and understanding it when they jump out at you you're aware enough to make that decision and kind of be guided by it without focusing too much on it. Cause that was yeah. kind of where my question was leading. Like how much, yeah, do you have to follow the star maps to make any decision? You're like, no, I, I know that is all happening in the background. Yeah. And when some pattern jumps out, makes itself apparent, I'm ready to go with, with that new flow. Well, Jason, I do want to run through then uh, just, you know, promo for feral fungi, where can people find the products? And then right now, what products do you guys offer? Yeah, so um, we have quite a full line. You know, you can find us online at feralfungi.com, also on Instagram at feralfungi. Those are kind of like the best places to follow. I'm really bad at the social media stuff, so it's, I don't post a whole bunch. But when I do, I try to make it informative and kind of give more insight into some of the processes that we're doing. If you're in Oregon, we're in a handful of different stores all around the state um, and then various stores throughout the country as well. It just kind of 
it depends on where you're at and, and what's available, but um, Whole Foods, or not Whole Foods, rather, sorry, Market of Choice in, in Oregon carries our stuff, the Ashland Co-op, a, a lot of co-ops and, and small stores. Um, there's a few stores in Nevada City and down in other places in California and, and out east. So, uh, you know, if you have questions on where to find them directly, let us know. Also, feel free to go out to stores if you want to see them in your stores and just kind of like request that they carry our products because we're ready to fulfill that. But, you know, we're doing our best to provide that. So we have, I think at this point, we're doing 13 individual mushrooms um, that we work with. Two of them are like limited release, including our agaricon and our Oregon reishi, because we're only working with fruit bodies and we're only working with North American material. So those are kind of like the lines that we draw when sourcing our material. So things like agaricon, it's like we don't ever encourage people to harvest agaricon right. fruit bodies. Um, but we have a couple of folks who have some great places where they get like ground fallen specimens um, that they've given to us and we've been able to work with. And so... We also just added uh, oyster mushrooms to our line, which is a fun one for me because uh, it's something I think that often gets overlooked so far as its medicinal value. And and it has a lot to offer, especially in regards to mental health and and brain health and things like that. So um, you can check out our whole line on our website. And again, most of our blends are available in different stores. Um, So we have six different blends that we offer as well. So I should have asked that question from the start when it comes to sourcing, but I had the feeling it was kind of the highest integrity. And of course it is from North America. I think a lot of people like to hear that, like to hear about where it's coming from. And, you know, for people who want to learn more about maybe the spagyric process, because the way you make it sound, it's like a practice we should all be engaging in for <laughs> our own metaphysical well-being. Mm-hmm. So if people want to learn more about that, there's obviously the alchemycology section of radical mycology, which anyone listening, you should already have the radical mycology Bible or tome (laughs) in your library. And you can always use the alchemycology as a primer. But do any resources stand out to you for people that want to learn more about making spagyric extractions? And also any resources stand out for people who want to dip their toe more in this this world of kind of alchemical perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so definitely Robert Bartlett, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he's got a book, Real Alchemy, and then he's also got a book, um, The Way of the Crucible, um, where he details some more complicated paths. And he recently retired from his job as a chemist. So he's going to be full-time on um, converting his years and years and years of practical alchemical knowledge into literary tomes of genius um he just put out a book on the temper of herbs too which is like talking again more from that constituent perspective but he even like goes so far as to like do what are called destructive distillations of all the herbs and like burn them and basically take that spagyric anatomy to determine what degree of hot cold wet or dry the herbs are so if you're into that kind of stuff robert bartlett is a great resource and then sage of popham is also a great resource with the School of Evolutionary Herbalism. He offers some great wisdom in the specifically in the herbal realm of alchemical wisdom. And he has the podcast, uh, The Plant Path. Um, it's a great place to learn not only like perspectives on energetic perspectives on herbalism, but also um, the alchemical tradition. Other great books are like Manfred Junius's uh, 
practical spagyrics, I think it's called. And um, I think I've got a list of resources on alchemycology.com. If, if not, I'll, I'll put some, some more on there. Um, that also just, I, I get so swamped in just kind of doing the extractions and things like that, that um, kind of like the educational side often gets a little bit malnourished. And so, um, you know, another way is to, is you start with the seven basic spagyrics and, and you can start making simple tinctures and then burning the plant material and getting the pure mineral salts and putting them in your tincture. And that's kind of um, one of the foundational things that we offered. That was like what I started feral fungi on was a line of seven planetary spagyric tinctures, one for each day of the week. And that is what is known as like an initiatic set. So you take a little bit each day of that and then it kind of like aligns your mind, body and spirit. And then also just kind of like opens you up to the, the potential of what deeper lessons there are to learn from those things too. So that's, a, that's the best way is to get your hands dirty. You know, it's like you can read as much as you want, but doing it is much more applicable. Get out of the armchair, start putting it into practice. Exactly. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to go down the rabbit holes. You've given some great resources here. There are terrific resources on the website as well. We'll have all of that linked up there. And I'm just excited to go down this rabbit hole. And I have a feeling when we study alchemy, you start getting to the roots of kind of modern chemistry and different mm -hmm. sciences that we're finding obvious parallels in what, you, in what you're talking about. Absolutely. Well, I'll have you leave us then with, a couple questions I like to ask all my guests. The first question is a mushroom you love and why, and this can be for whatever reason. It doesn't have to be a favorite. Might be one you just thought of this second, uh, but a mushroom or a fungi that you love and why? Yeah, one that I uh, often go to for this question. You know, I I love all kind of like the usual suspects, like most people, turkey tail and lion's mane and those things, but. One that I really revere that often gets overlooked is uh, red belted conch, Fomatopsis uh, pinnacola. And, and that was one of the first ones that I started like researching and, and experimenting with. And I just have a deep reverence for that mushroom and, and just the wisdom that it holds and how prevalent it is. You know, it's like I'm in Flagstaff right now. I found this mushroom out here in Flagstaff. I find it in the forest at home all the time. I know you have it down where you're at. It's like a really pervasive mushroom. And it creates this like crazy precipitate when you make a really strong extract of it that like all of the Fomatopsis genus that I've worked with so far have done it. But it's like this, the tincture can, can be like thick, like so thick that sometimes we have to dilute it. Otherwise it just becomes like a solid mass in the bottle. And so it's one of the best mushrooms that we've worked with for digestive health and digestive pain and inflammation and anything digestive and among so many other things, but I, I'll have to say red belted. Yeah. A, a great choice. I think it's one of those underexplored medicinals getting less and less. So as more people become aware yeah. of it, mm -hmm. but something, yeah, something I'm excited to see people work with more. Mm -hmm. And then another, the next question is kind of a big general question, and we've hinted at it throughout the interview, but this relationship you developed with fungi, and I'd say you have a pretty unique kind of fundamental relationship with fungi in every stage of life and every, and every kind of state of matter, if you will, mm -hmm. from liquid to gas to physical. But what has that relationship you've developed with fungi uh, given to you? Lessons it's taught you, perspectives it's offered. What has that given to you? I think just like humble simplicity is, is kind of like the basis of it is like, there's like so much complexity in the way that the mushrooms are and the way the mushrooms work, but then they're just like so humble about the way 
that they go about it. It's really inspiring. And, and then the way that they are just that central crux in the, the ecosystem and the way that they kind of create community around that and the way that they create healing. And I think it's just everything and kind of like can, can base your life off of that. Beautiful principles to model our own lives off of. Mm-hmm. And then the final question is for you, what are the highest aspirations you have for human society really as we develop more intimate relationships with fungi kind of across the planet, especially in the Western world? as we kind of learn how to work with fungi in the most positive aspect, maybe in the next 10, 20 years, however far you want to look into the future, how do you see that fundamentally changing human society? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a, that's a huge question. I think, um, I think for me personally, it's trying to, trying to take a lesson from the fungi and trying to kind of reorient the way that we structure our lives and our societies. I think a lot of it is like the stories that we learn from the fungi and the way that we connect to life through those stories and the way that we connect to the mushrooms through those stories. And ultimately I'm hoping through the work that we're doing at Feral Fungi and, and kind of like the way that I see the industry moving that we can really bring you know, the mushroom supplement industry and then just the supplement industry as a whole into a higher level of integrity by bringing things more locally, being transparent with processes and and being really clear about what our connection is to the things that we're working with and and what people's connections are with the things that that we're giving them. And I think that that's kind of like my personal path within that, but I'm just like constantly blown away and excited by the myriad of ways that I see mushrooms influencing the future. And I, I really just like am watching where I've been kind of intimately connected to fungi for over 10 years now. And to just see in the past like two years and especially like just in the past year, the way that the interest in mushrooms in all different regards is just blossoming or fruiting, I guess would probably be a more better term <laughs> is, is really offering a lot of potential solutions to maybe some of the things that we started out the episode with as as being kind of like problems that are needing to be addressed and again i think just kind of like doing our best to listen and and to follow and and not step in front of them in that way because i think you know they've already done it like six times they've gone through the extinction periods and they've made it out the other side and i think we can learn a thing or two from that so Absolutely. In a society needing stories and needing new models of organization and life forms to emulate for mushrooms offer a solution in so many ways. And I think it is appropriate that on this podcast where we've discussed alchemy extensively, we kind of ended right near where we began. Mm-hmm. So I think that has kind of a perfect, perfect <laughs> circular nature to it. Yeah. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing really powerful insights, sharing kind of a whole philosophical framework in a very neat package, sharing your work with fungi. It's all very inspiring. And I think a lot of people listening like myself are going to now want a room full of flasks and start working <laughs> with fungi that much more deeply. So yeah, thank you so much for coming and sharing time with us on the Mushroom Hour. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Darren. It's uh, been a pleasure to to speak with you and, and hopefully we can chat again at some point. 